Well, here we are, another week, another episode of the Semi-Seminarian. This is a continuation of our Bible study series, which we're calling The Bible for Grown-Ups. In this episode, we're looking at part two of our study of the Acts of the Apostles. Tonight, our talk is entitled The Roof. The Roof, the Roof is on Fire. We're going to be looking at the significance of the Pentecost action, the descent of the Holy Spirit onto the people we find in chapter 2. I'll see you on the other side. <laughs> so in order to wrap up on time, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Uh, this is se- se- session 2 of our study on Acts. The roof, the roof, is, roof is on fire. And we're going to actually begin the study on Acts chapter 2 by looking in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. So if you see your sheet there. If you want to go ahead and get to Deuteronomy 26 and wait for me, I'll catch up with you guys. So uh, last time when we were together, we looked at the first chapter of Acts and we found ourselves right at the end of that chapter uh, with the 11 disciples, apostles, now picking a replacement for Judas. And we will recall this is going to be important uh, not only through that lesson, but also through this one too, that there was something that was very, very important uh, to the disciples in picking that replacement. And they had, they had uh, two things that they wanted to look for. One, uh, they decided that the apostle, the replacement, should have been with them the whole time. And been with, the whole, with them the whole time was actually defined by Peter by saying that, there's a beginning, and that beginning is Jesus' baptism. And then there's the resurrection or the ascension uh, at the end of his earthly life. So there's a start and there's the beginning, uh, the start and the end, if you will, for someone that's been with us for the whole time. There's two things that are in common, which each, each one of those signposts, uh, the first one is that there's a witnessing of heaven by witnesses. In the baptism uh, by the John the Baptist, the heavens open up, the Spirit descends upon Jesus as a dove. And then, of course, we, uh, after the resurrection, the uh, eyewitnesses discovered the art, witnessed uh, the heavens opening up during the ascension. The other thing that uh, those two events held in common was that not only was it witnessed and participated in by uh, the 12 apostles, but also it was witnessed by other people. So they could spread this news of the resurrection as it being an event, as it being eyewitness testimony, and it's something that not only they and their close circle of friends saw, but other people saw as well. That eyewitness testimony, part of it, was super, super important because the apostles we're going to find are going to start the early church, the Christian movement, not just on faith not just on something that a book told them to believe in. They're going to begin the Christian faith, the worship of Jesus on an event, an actual event that's backed up by eyewitness testimony. So tonight we're going to look at chapter 2 of the Acts of the Apostles, and this is going to deal with another one of these Jewish festivals that's called the Festival uh, or Feast of the First Fruits. It's also known as Pentecost. And... The timing, just to remember to put ourselves in the time frame here, the timing is going to be Passover plus seven sevens. So 50 days. 49 days plus the day of Passover. That day is 
is uh, Pentecost. And uh, people will return back. Just a couple of months after the Passover festival, they'll return back to offer their first fruits offering. And the reason why I want to start off in Deuteronomy is I want to get a Jewish understanding of this festival before we look at the Christian significance of Pentecost. Because I think that we find in the Bible stuff that, man, that sure is really coincidental. And we realize that it's not coincidence. It's a pattern of God's behavior that shows us something about what we can trust about God and the way he's acted in the past. God can act in the future. So I believe that there is some distinct parallels that we can draw between the Jewish celebration of the Festival of First Fruits and the Christian celebration of Pentecost. So beginning with the first verse of the 26th chapter of Deuteronomy, Moses writes, When you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, Take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling uh, for his name and say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give. Verse 4. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, you're going to say this out loud, okay? My father was a wandering Armenian. Okay. What? What's an Armenian? Mine's a Syrian. Syrian, okay? Same thing. These are just different names of the same thing. This is going to be modern-day Syria or northwest Iraq or northwest Babylon at that time, Mesopotamia, okay? Um, and I said Armenian, and it should be Armenian. Ar- Armenian. So let's go down this rabbit hole, okay, about Armenians. Because these Jewish people are declaring that I... let's. Just because I don't like saying that word, let's say Syrian because it's the same word. It's easier for us to say. Okay, so this is someone that comes from Syria or northwest Babylon. Okay, and so we're declaring as Jewish people, my father was a wandering Syrian. Okay, now I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 24. Not too far away, all the way on the left-hand side. In the 24th chapter of Genesis, we find the patriarch Abraham, and Abraham is now in Canaan, okay? Uh, Specifically, he's in Hebron, which is south of Jerusalem, and would have then been called Philistia, or Philistia. Today, we would call that Palestine. Okay, so he is in the land of Canaan, land that today is not Israel, but is in Palestine, the city of Hebron on the west bank of the Jordan. Okay, so Abraham's here, and Sarah, his wife, has died, and he is very old. So, chapter 24 of Genesis says, Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. 
He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughter of the Canaanites for who, among whom I am living. But you will go to my country and my relatives to get a wife for my son Isaac. Skipping down to 15, this servant has now made his way to this area of northwest Babylon or Syria. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, the son of uh, Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nabor. Okay, so who's Bethuel? Bethuel is Abraham's nephew. Okay, we are in the northwest portion of Iraq. Okay, we are north of what we call today the country of Israel, kind of up where it starts to touch where Turkey would be. If you have the Middle East map in your head like I do. Okay. This is where the the ancestral home of Abraham. Okay? We find Abraham, Genesis finds Abraham in the city of Ur of the of the Chaldeans. Okay? But this is his ancestral home. So this servant has left Canaan, Hebron, and gone northward, north and eastward to northwest Babylon, back to where Abraham originally was from. He has found his nephew, Bethuel, and Bethuel has a daughter. That daughter is Rebekah. Okay? He is an Aramean. Later, Isaac's son, Jacob, would return back to this area. It's called uh, Pada Aram, where he married Leah and Rachel. They would be the daughters of Laban, who again was identified as an Aramean. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all wandering Syrians. Syrians right? But this verse in which we profess of our father is speaking specifically about Jacob. Why? Well, Deuteronomy continues. So flip back to Deuteronomy 26. Deuteronomy 26 and 5. And he, the wandering Syrian father that I have, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. That's Jacob and his offspring, right? It's the result of Joseph and his divine uh, placement in the Pharaoh's household. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to hard labor. Uh, Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I... This is the continuing of this professment you would make in front of the priest. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. 
Then you and the Levites, that's the priests, and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given you and your household. Okay, so in regular person words, so we can all understand this, what are they celebrating at First Fruits? Or this Pentecost festival. <coughs> They're celebrating the fact that God had made a promise to them, right? And that promise had been fulfilled. The produce of that land, this agricultural produce, of the land that God gave them is proof that God had fulfilled His end of the bargain. Even in times that you, that you relate in the words you say, even in times where things didn't go well, God says, I still promised you blessing. I still promised you deliverance. God is saying through all of this, I am always faithful. I've made a promise to you and I've kept it. And your recognition of my sovereignty as God is a portion of the first harvest of the land I have provided you. Okay? And when we think about the conversion of the first souls on this day of Pentecost, we might equate that to the first harvest. That God is again proving His faithfulness to the human being. Right? That the story of the Bible is in fact a story of God and His creation and how God time and again creates a way that we might come in contact with Him even when we choose the other choice because of His love. Right? And so the festival of first fruits, I think, has a very, a very real symbolic connection to what we'll see as Christian Pentecost. Okay? So, having said that, let's look at Christian Pentecost. Let's look at that day. So we're going to begin in the second chapter of Acts, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they... Now, this is going to be all of the apostles and then their followers. They were all together in one place. Tradition tells us that this is still the upper room perhaps, of John Mark's mother's house. And suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, Luke, the historian here, is overlaying these events in the second chapter of Acts with the ancient stories of the people of Israel. Not only as a literary device, but to show us the consistency of God. Think about this. If God brought order out of chaos then we should be able to act, see God acting and working in an orderly way with us. In a way that seems to make sense and follow a pattern. That's what order out of chaos would mean. He would be working and, and interacting with us in an orderly way. And when we can see that pattern in our lives, 
if we recognize it, it can actually form one of those foundations of faith that we need. Because if we can see God acting in a consistent and faithful way, not only through our lives, but throughout the whole of the Bible, then we can anticipate and expect and trust that He will act in the same orderly way in the future. So the Holy Spirit has come to the individual, and it's represented by wind, here, and fire. Okay? Now, rhetorically, where do we find other stories, perhaps, in the Bible of wind and fire? Remember, I'm looking for patterns here, okay? So skip back to another book that Moses wrote, Exodus. And I hope that this, as, as I go through these, I hope that you'll see the magic eye of it. As you stare at this a little bit longer, and then all of a sudden, the, I think it'll pop out, and all of a sudden you'll see the fish swimming in the whatever, right? So Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, okay? We find Moses tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, who was a priest in Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. That is a mountain that will later be called Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him, from within the bush. Moses. Moses. Now, while we're in Exodus, skip to Exodus chapter 40. And we are going to begin looking at the first verse of Exodus chapter 40. And while you're flipping there, let me kind of set you up where we're at in the story. Okay? We have got to the point now where the, where the, the people of God are in the wilderness and it is time for... God to instruct Moses on how to build the movable tabernacle. Okay? So he's telling him how it's supposed to be done, and he's now commanding him to do it. Okay? So Exodus chapter 40, verse 1, begins this way. Then the Lord says to Moses, Set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. Place the ark of the covenant law in it. Shield the ark with a curtain. Bring in the table and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the Ark of the Covenant Law and put the curtain at the entrance of the tabernacle. Now skim down to verse 33. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished his work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The presence of God as indicated by this cloud or smoke has filled filled the tabernacle. Okay? Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all of the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. 
But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord uh, was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during their travels. Now, I want you to skip to Second Chronicles. And while you're getting there, I'm going to tell you about one of the things that we see when we see this. The Hebrew word is Shekinah, Shekinah, which means the physical manifestation of the glory of God. God's presence on earth. In essence, we have an earthly realm and a heavenly realm. And when those two realms intersect, where heaven and earth meet... These are the moments where we see the manifestation of God's glory through wind, through fire, and smoke, or cloud. In these moments where heaven and earth overlap, there we find God's presence. Okay. In the incident in Exodus chapter 40, this intersection is that movable tabernacle, right? That's where the cloud of God filled the movable tabernacle. That was the place where the, where the heavenly realm intersected with the earthly realm. Now, once the people get settled, it's time to build an actual building this time. Second Chronicles describes the building of that temple by David's son Solomon. And we are now looking at the dedication or the consecration of Solomon's temple here by Solomon in 2 Chronicles. And I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you to go to chapter 7. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1, Scripture says this, When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all of the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and they gave thanks to the Lord saying, He is good. His love endures forever. What do these events have in common? These events have in common the tabernacling of God with his people. Now, we use that word tabernacle to think of a place, a structure, a building, some sort of holy structure. But that's actually not what the word tabernacle means. The word tabernacle actually means to dwell with. In John, in the very first chapter of John, when, we when, when John is explaining in the beginning about the Word and the flesh, he says in the 14th verse, and God dwelt among us. John chapter 1, verse 14. You don't have to turn there. I'm just quoting it. John says, God coming to the earth dwelt among us. The word dwelt there in the gospel account is the word tabernacle. Or in English tabernacled. It's the place where heaven and earth meet. Here in Acts, verse 4 of chapter 2, we read that all of them, 
all of the individual people had the fire above them and were filled with the Holy Spirit. In each one of them individually, the Spirit of God didn't tabernacle in a place, be it temporary or permanent, but He tabernacled within us. We can see the consistency of God's actions here, right? God comes to the earth from the heavenly realm, and that manifestation is through wind or fire or smoke or cloud, the way that we can perceive it, right? The difference is in the Old Testament, God chose to dwell in a place for the benefit of the people. In the, under the new covenant, God has decided to dwell within the people. And so when we read of the people with the tongues like fire above their head, that's, that's why that we're having that. that. That's why we have that as an image. That's God showing us something. That's God tying us back to those ancient stories of the Israelite people. Continuing on in Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 5. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem. There were staying in Jerusalem. God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. They have returned back to the festival of first fruits or Pentecost. Now, if you were with us when we talked about the coming of people to Passover, uh, the, and we said that uh, scholars have determined that the city of Jerusalem may have swelled to three times its normal size during Passover, the festival of, of Pentecost is not that big. But still, the it's going to swell to probably double its size. There are people everywhere. And so, they're from all over the place. And when they heard this sound, the wind, right, rushing through, they came together in bewilderment, right? Because when this all heard, they, when this all happened, they began to hear each one in their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Now I want to pause right there for a second. How would they have known that? Because they're hearing in their own language. It's not that they're hearing Aramaic, unless of course Aramaic was their own language, right? And if, if they were speaking Aramaic, then they would have they maybe would have been able to assume that they were Galileans. Because Aramaic was the dialect of Galilee, right? Perhaps it was their dialect. One of the uh, scholars that I had uh, read uh, for the study in Matthew had indicated that Galileans had a, the, I guess the Galilean dialect of Aramaic is, I think you guys may remember me saying this, is particularly annoying to people. And so much so that um, Galileans weren't allowed to read the proclamations in synagogue. People just didn't like to hear the way they talked. Right? So it could have been their dialect, maybe their, what do we call it, their um, accent. Even though they're hearing their own language, maybe they're hearing it in an accent that sounds strange to them. Perhaps it's that. Maybe it was how the Galileans dressed. Maybe they, remember these guys are all fishermen, they're country bumpkins. Right? Maybe it was the way that they dressed. Right? Yes. Right? We don't really know. 
why it was so clearly stated, aren't these guys Galileans? Uh, Although an interesting thought that is not backed up by Scripture, but an interesting thing to think about is maybe some of these people did know him. Remember, it's just been a couple of weeks since all the brouhaha went down at Passover. Remember how famous, how popular Jesus was when he came in to celebrate that Passover. It wouldn't be completely out of the realm of possibility that the people calling out the Galileans here might very well recall a few months ago when these guys were with Jesus. Maybe that's a part of the story. Again, there's no backup to that. I'm just saying it's an interesting thing to think about. So continuing on uh, with Acts here. Then how is it that each one of us, if they're Galileans, how can we be hearing in our native language? Okay, and then Luke has a time out here and starts just in the middle of this story that's really uh, spectacular. He just starts laying out a geography lesson about the people that are there. He says the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans from Greece, and Arabs. Luke doesn't have to tell us this. Luke doesn't have to tell us anything. So why would he stop the middle of this fairly exciting narrative and list all of this out? I, I believe it's to indicate to us that in this moment when the Holy Spirit comes upon these individual people and the fruit of the Holy Spirit begins to spread as they hear each one of their languages being spoken, what this list of people represents is basically the whole known world at the time. Okay? Now, it doesn't include Chinese or Russians or whatever, South Americans, right? Because it wasn't, that part of the world wasn't known then in the first century. But in the first century, this basically, when Luke writes this out, he's saying to the first century reader, somebody from everywhere was here. The whole, there were people from the whole world here. And we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed, they asked, each one, uh, asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Right? Sweet bear wine. Right? And then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. And I'm sure people probably went, ah, right, yeah, because they'd be day drinking, right? They partied all night. No, Peter says, no. This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Oh, wait, oh, yeah, because we're Jewish. We know this, right? We don't. But the Jewish people would have went, oh, okay. And he just straight up quotes from Joel's prophecy here. The second chapter of Joel's prophecy. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all my people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. 
blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, there's three options here. Either Joel is talking about an event that had happened, or Joel is talking about an event that will happen, or Joel is talking about an event that is happening right now. Is Joel's prophecy, is what he's talking about in these last days, is this something that in, in the chronology of the Bible, is it something that had already happened? Is it something that will happen? Or is it something that is happening as Peter is speaking Joel's prophecy? That's my argument. That this is about right now, Peter is saying. And if you go back, go home and read and start back at Joel, beginning of Joel, Joel is, uh, there's a famine in the land and the people have just suffered a um, plague of locusts. The reason why they're suffering the drought and the locusts is because the people of Israel have turned away from God. And in the very first part of the explanation, in chapter 1, this is chapter 2, but in chapter 1, Joel actually says something to the people of Israel. He says, you drunkards, wake up, arise, put the wine down. I think Peter knows his Bible. And given the fact that they had just made the comment about being drunk at nine in the morning, this is tying all of that in. If you memorize Joel as a kid, you might have chuckled whenever he starts reading Joel 2 because we just accused those guys of being drunk and went, oh, yeah. I remember from when Joel had that problem with the locusts. The other thing I think is interesting is, and I've done about a full day of research on this to finally decide where I'm coming down because I think the last time I had mentioned that this event is happening in the spring of 30. I've changed my mind. I've changed my mind because even though Isaac Newton came up with April of 30, there's a, there's a better theory out there. There's actually a theory that the, um, that the crucifixion of Jesus happened on April 3rd, 33. And the reason why that is there is because astronomers have gone back and have actually showed that at 6.02 p.m. there was a lunar eclipse that as the sun was beginning to set and the moon began to rise, the moon would have filled like, like blood. So if he would have been crucified at 3 p.m. and sent to the tomb at 6 p.m., it would have actually been at a time where astronomers have been able to indicate that in Jerusalem at 6.02 p.m., there would have been a lunar eclipse, a partial lunar eclipse that would have made the moon red. That event would have occurred on April 3rd, 33. So, he could also be saying, remember whenever all that hubbub ha happened with Jesus and we had the blood moon? That's coming from Joel 2. Right? What he's doing though, Peter, is he's quoting Joel 2. I think those are a couple of interesting theories. But what Peter is actually doing is he's trying to explain the phenomenon of speaking in tongues. 
The Holy Spirit is descended into the individual. The individual, as a human being, now acts differently than the human being has acted in the past because now the Holy Spirit, the intersection of earth and heaven, is now here, not in a building. Okay? And as we begin to speak in tongues, I think Peter, whenever he uses Joel's prophecy to say that our sons and daughters will prophesy, that young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams, right? And he'll pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Peter is pulling it out from Joel here. This is promised already to us from God. We shouldn't be surprised. We certainly shouldn't be thinking these guys are drunk. Because if you know Joel the way I know Joel, and I know you do, then you would have already known. This was prophesied. It was promised to us. Peter's also saying that, the, um, that what we're seeing, right, that is proof of God's order through chaos. So he continues on. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it is impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me in the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Uh, You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. By quoting this psalm here, and I believe this is the 110th psalm, I think. Peter is drawing the people's attention just like he does to Joel. This is something that should not catch us by surprise. We were told long ago that God was going to work in our lives in an unusual way. What's so unusual? Jesus died, the Messiah died, and death couldn't hold him. Usually people die and they stay dead. But Jesus didn't stay, stay dead. God's already told us he's going to act in this unusual way. But let's pause here for just a moment and let's give Peter his right due. Right? Because how long ago had it been since Peter had denied knowing Jesus to a little girl? 50 days. A couple of months. A month and a half. Two months. Right? How long ago had it been that Peter didn't even have the guts to go and see Jesus die because he was scared he might be next? A couple of months. In a few weeks, here he is standing amongst thousands of people in Jerusalem and saying, You did it. You killed him. Something is different about Peter. And that should be encouraging for all of us. Because no matter how much you've screwed up in the past, right? I might have kicked Peter off the team. Right? Jesus made him the quarterback. Right? When the power of the Holy Spirit begins to work in us, it can, not always, but it can work immediately. 
So Peter, in this newfound spirit, says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently. He, he's not going to let the David thing go. He says, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb, it is here, in this town, to this very day. But he was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him on an oath that he would place one of his descendants, Isaiah chapter 11, one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised Jesus to life. And here's the big part. And we are all witnesses to it. We all saw that happen. Exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, talking about Jesus, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus. Whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied to them, Repent. Now, when he says repent here, he's, he's not saying, Turn away from your sin of gambling. Or, I mean, you might be, but that's, Peter here is saying, Change your mind about what you thought a couple of months ago about Jesus. Because Jesus isn't in that grave where they laid him. And we are all witnesses to it. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 people were added to that number that day. I think that's an average Sunday probably for Life Church. 3,000 people. 3,000 people in Jerusalem who had heard of or witnessed the life or the acts or the deeds of Jesus. 3,000 people, and, and don't miss this, 3,000 people who could have at any time during Peter's speech said, time out, I would like the crowd to follow me because I can show you where he's buried. This wasn't years ago. This was two months ago. Time out. I can take you to the place where I know his body is. No. In the very city where Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, over 3,000 people said, we believe. And 3,000 people joined the church on day one and were baptized. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. 
They sold property and possessions to give anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And that's chapter 2. Well, there you have it. I hope that that was illuminating and educational for you to listen to as much as it was for me to prepare for. Hey, before I let you go, if you like what we're doing here at the Semi-Seminary, and I'd ask that if you would, if you could make sure to subscribe to the podcast, that way you'll be notified when we upload new episodes. Also, however it is that you listen to this podcast if you could take the time to rate and review the podcast we'd greatly appreciate it it helps get the word out to new folks anyway i will see you next week as we continue on in our study of the acts of the apostles and until then be blessed and be a blessing